Hello listeners, and welcome to the seventh episode of Uni Talks. In this episode, Christian from London is our host. Christian, an aspiring marine biologist, interviews Christopher Hamilton, a reader in philosophy at King's College London. Christian really isn't afraid to quiz Christopher on some of the most puzzling philosophical conundrums of our times. Also in this episode, our agony aunts Anne-Marie and Paul will be answering all of your questions around anxieties, apprehensions and practicalities at university. Now over to Christian. Hi, I'm Christian. Welcome to the UniTalks podcast, brought to you by the Institute of Arts and Ideas in association with the Brilliant Club and King College London. Hi, my name is Christian. I'm today a video host. I'm a normal A-level student studying A-level biology, chemistry and economics at Elephant and Castle. Today, I will be interviewing Dr. Hamilton about philosophy and theology and literature. I'm excited to ask him questions because normally A-level students don't have a lot of opportunities to talk to academics. I haven't done philosophy before, which has a lot of ideas and concepts about society. At university, I'm hoping to study microbiology, and I hope to end up being a research scientist or a marine biologist. During my childhood, I watched a lot of documentaries because of my father, and then you end up liking it, and you have you discover new things about insects, their behavior, their changes, their adaptations. Something that I love from is marine biology, especially. Hopefully, I can give you an insight of what is to study at university and what is to be an academic. At the end, is your degree and your life, and it doesn't matter what you do if you end up doing something you love. Hi, I'm Christian. Nice to meet you. Very good to meet you, Christian. I'm Christopher. Can you give a brief introduction of yourself, please? Yes, my name's Christopher Hamilton and I teach philosophy here in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at King's College London. And I mainly work in philosophy in an interdisciplinary way, that's to say in relationship to literature and to film. Interesting indeed. Next question, why did you choose to go to university? Is it because other people went into university or is it because of your personal preference? I was actually the first person in my family to go to university. Actually, originally, I was extremely interested in the sciences, and I had originally decided to go to university probably to study physics. But when I was about 17, I heard of a thing called philosophy, and I'd read no philosophy, but it sounded terribly exotic and exciting. And so I got a few books and started to read them. Of course, I didn't understand a single word, but that only made me more (laughs) Interested. Uh, interested in, exactly, in, in studying. So I'd heard that philosophy meant the love of wisdom, and so that also excited me. How do you teach philosophy? Can you give us an example and a bit of introduction in the topic? Yeah. The main way I teach is, in part, very traditional. I get students to read particular things, usually before the class, and we use their thinking on that and their responses to it as discussion material. In another way, it's not traditional insofar as I often teach philosophy modules where we just read literature and we think about the philosophy in that. So that means I'm not trying to impose on the text a philosophical view. I'm just trying to see how philosophy emerges out of, say, a novel. But crucial to that is discussion, trying to get the students to respond, to think 
honestly about a text, you know, and if they say to me they found it difficult or frustrating, that doesn't bother me in the slightest. On the contrary, if they said to me, I understand it all, I wouldn't believe them anyway. <laughs> so I never have an hour where I just speak. Um, I'm always trying to provoke them to think about the material. One of the things I tell the students is confusion is good. Not knowing what you're saying and not knowing why you're saying it is good. The point is then to turn that into productive confusion because confusion is often a sign of thinking about it. If, you, if you're not confused, it means you, probably means you're not thinking about the material. I think human beings are extremely confused animals. You know, as Heidegger says, we are the kind of creature who puts ourselves into question. We ask ourselves what we are. And in asking ourselves what we are, what we find is that we're not finished, we're not rounded, we're not complete. And in that sense, I don't think, I think human beings are forever puzzled about their own nature. And that there's no such thing as an answer to what their nature is. All there is is a series of, of questions, and some of them are good questions and some of them are not so good, by which I mean that some of them might enable one to see something, others are dead ends, and so on. And that's why I think that philosophy really is about asking the right kinds of questions. And this is one reason why Nietzsche is an important philosopher for me, because he undermines his own thinking in a way that seems to me exemplary as a philosopher. You know, I've spent 30 years or more of my life doing philosophy, and if there's one thing I feel sure of is that I'm less sure of most things than I was, you know? That's the puzzlement of, of, of human life. The idea that you could spend 30 years thinking about morality, for example, or religion, and, and have the answers just seems to me crazy. Um, next question is, what is your philosophical perspective in failure? On failure, gosh, <laughs> there's a wonderful essay by George Orwell. In fact, it's I think it's his review of the autobiography uh, written by Salvador Dali. And Orwell criticizes Dali because Dali wants to present himself as a success. And Orwell says that the autobiography is dishonest. And it's dishonest because he says everyone knows, however successful one is on the outside, as it were, life is a series of defeats and that seems to me true it seems to me that it's the nature of the human condition however successful one is in you know in a, in a worldly sense that one gets to a point in life and one realizes uh, that one is not the person one wanted to be at least in every respect that one has let people down that other people have let one down that one's done foolish and silly things, that one is in various ways inadequate. One way to make sense of failure in one's life is to admit that it happens and it's that it's inevitable. From really the beginning of philosophy, certainly from Plato and Aristotle, philosophers have been obsessed, as indeed human beings are obsessed, with the idea of happiness. I do think happiness exists, but I think focusing on it and trying to define it is a hopeless thing. I think all one can do is say what happiness isn't. If you're miserable and unhappy and lonely, obviously you're not, you're not happy. A more helpful way to think about one's own life is to think of it as an adventure. To think that whatever happens to me, at any rate, I must make it mine and live my life, even with all its failures and mistakes and so on. And I think if you're lucky in a small way that that can help and that's a much more productive way of thinking than thinking I want to be happy. Life couldn't possibly be you know what we'd expect it to be or what we hoped it to be you know right at the beginning.
following on that question, can you tell me how I've, as a young person can I take ownership of my life? No, I can't tell you. <laughs> I can't tell you, but I can tell you a few things that I think about that question. I think the, the, the thing about being young is that you necessarily lack the perspective that you have when you're older. You don't know what it's like to be middle-aged, and when you're middle-aged, you don't know what it, you've forgotten, in a way, what it's like to be young. So I don't know what I could say about taking ownership of your own life. I think that talking is incredibly important, talking about books and thinking through ideas, and that when, once you can articulate what's going on, then I think that gives you more of a sense of control over your life. Can you explain in more detail your area of expertise? Yes, I can. Actually, what I'm really interested in is the meaning of life, <laughs> which, is, which is the only, only philosophical question that in the end really matters, despite what all philosophers tell you. <laughs> Um, that's to say, right from, right from when I was very young, the reason I got hooked on philosophy was because I was just simply interested in that. How do people make sense of their lives? What do they do? What do people do that gives them a sense of fulfillment? What is it that people do that gives them a sense of meaning? For me, that, had, that has a particular resonance because uh, I grew up with quite a strong Catholic faith, which I lost when I was 17. And once I no longer had this faith, I no longer could occupy the position that I had when I had it. In other words, I didn't really know what I had lost. And so I wanted to explore exactly why I had lost it and what it had meant to me when I did have it. And that's why I became a philosopher. From that point of view, philosophy has always had and still has for me an existential dimension. That the fundamental question is, who am I? What am I doing with my life? So my area of expertise, if that's the right way to put it, is that I try and th I try and think about philosophy books and books of literature and poetry and films and so on. Because what I'm interested in, as I say, is how do people make sense of their lives? And in particular, when this was actually something on, this was the topic of my PhD, was I, I read Nietzsche and again understood very little, but was aware of you know, he's famous for saying God is dead. God is dead and we have killed him. And so this resonated with, for me very, very strongly. And um, Nietzsche's leading question is that if Christianity is gone, if there's a process of secularization underway, um, the question then is, well, what if anything replaces it? How do we make sense of our How do we make sense of our lives, for example, if we don't believe that there is a moral world order, that people can be wicked and live terrible lives, and then they die and that's the end of it. They're not punished, there's no, you know, and other people can live, morally speaking, exemplary lives, but they might be struck down by a terrible disease or run over by a bus or something. I mean, I've, I've written a few things directly on that question. You know, I published a paper a couple of years ago on the meaning of life, and there was lots of philosophy now, philosophers have written on the meaning of life. But most of what I've written has been on that topic indirectly, um, just trying to take a particular case. So, for example, a case of um, a problem about forgiveness, for example, um, or some aspect of suffering or some aspect of political life. And all the time, that's what I'm interested in. So I'm interested in seeing how people make sense of their lives. And that's why Nietzsche, who kind of, for me diagnoses the condition of modernity, 
is so important. And that's why I think of philosophy as entirely continuous with ordinary everyday life. It's not an intellectual game that goes on here once you stop living. It's continuous with life. And when you live a life and you worry about you know, going to university and how you'll make sense of it, or you, you worry about friendships or love, to me that, that is philosophy. I want to ask you, in your opinion, what is pain? What is pain? I mean, there's pain and suffering. Suffering is often classified, you know, there's, there's mental suffering and there's physical suffering. And presumably you can talk about mental pain and physical pain as well. I don't know what it is. I mean, apart from the obviously neurological accounts or accounts in terms of the nervous system and so on. It seems to me true that human beings are extremely good at manufacturing situations in which they cause themselves to suffer. Of course, cause other people to suffer as well, but cause themselves to suffer. Because we are, in my view, um, well, Nietzsche put it as we are unfinished animals. We're not fully at home in the world. So suffering, I think, and pain and so on, confusion, basically confusion, is written into, into what we are. The other thing I think is that Nietzsche was right when he said that human beings don't fear suffering and pain. What they fear is meaningless suffering and pain. That's why this question about Christianity for me is very important because I think people can make sense of their pain and suffering within the context of Christianity because it has a, a notion of redemption. We can accept suffering. In fact, Nietzsche suggests we even create suffering if we can find a meaning in it. But if, when, we, when it's meaningless, when we just ask why and there's no answer, then I think people are in, are in trouble. It's an amazing perspective indeed. Do you think that pleasure is necessary for humans? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, of course. But the question always is um, how not to overdose. Human beings, haven't, human beings haven't got built into them an off switch for pleasure, <laughs> <laughs> which is why you can eat too much, drink too much, you know, and then you feel disgusted with yourself. So based on history and philosophy, what is more important, pain or pleasure, in terms of the development which have led to today's society? Well, I don't know which is the more important, but I think it's certainly true, unfortunately, that human beings are galvanized into action, uh, in part because of difficulty, because of pain, because of suffering, because they have to push themselves. I certainly don't think there's any concept of a human life or human life without the idea of pain, and pain is one of the motivating factors for human beings. Uh, can you give some advice or to some GCC and A-level students about what they should be doing if they want to get into philosophy at a university level? The main thing is be interested in everything. You can get philosophical ideas from so many different areas mm. that of course it would be important to read philosophy text and to develop an interest for the discipline. But I think that the really good students are those students also who are just interested in ideas and they get those ideas from all kinds of things, from music, from film, from literature, from, from talking as well. All of this can nourish thinking about a particular topic or a particular idea. I used to be the undergraduate admissions officer in this department. And always the best personal statements were those people who'd read 
something else or had gone to a conference or were interested just had a general interest in ideas and thinking but of course at the center of it there has to be the interest in particular philosophical texts and philosophical ideas i don't deny that but the thing that distinguishes the really good student is the student who can pick up a another text from a different discipline or different area and just use that for thinking about ideas. Be interested in as, as much as you can in the world and other people and books and ideas. Thanks for the advice. We just finished the interview with Mr. Hamilton. The interview was really interesting. It was a roller coaster of emotion, thoughts, and interpretation at the same time in a in a tidy room, which makes me realize there are so many questions about me that I don't know. The thing that really stood out for me, uh, for Mr. Hamilton, was that was how he got a strength from reading those books and essays his um, teacher recommended him, and how that motivated him and allowed him to become the person he is now. So, for me, and based on the interview. Every, you can say every person is a different world. And so different people will have different opinions, different concepts, different ideas. And you, when you think about it, I think it's something overwhelming and amazing that you are exposed to so many new things at the same time that maybe at the end of university you are a totally changed person. Next, you'll be hearing from our admission agony aunts, Anne-Marie and Paul. Anne-Marie and Paul both worked at King College London in admissions department. Paul is the director of admissions and Anne-Marie is the director of widening participation. Welcome to this week's episode on practicalities, anxieties and apprehensions. All right then, the first question we've had submitted is, do you think university prepares you for adult life? So that's a great question. Uh, I guess the thing is everyone's university experience is different. It certainly makes you, I think, much more worldwide, much more appreciative, uh, appreciative of different cultures, uh, different uh, nationalities, etc. Uh, you know, I think so. Yes, I think it gives you lots of skills. But I think you know a part of that is about your own development as well. And I think you know uh, students do develop during their time at university. But whether it gives you every skill to deal with all the things that adult life puts upon you, I'm not so sure. Yeah, well, I mean, when I think about my own university experience, I do think it prepared me for adult life. So I went to university when I was 18. I'd lived in a small town in Yorkshire, and, and when I got to university, I was sharing a flat with people from all over the country and, and all over the world, and people from all different backgrounds. There were people from Hackney and people from Hong Kong. Um, it really broadened my horizons in terms of life experiences. Um, it's also just incredible for learning about different cultures. It's the first time I ate an avocado. I like avocados now. Um, so it really is a, a, an amazing experience to learn from uh, other people. The other thing is, just in terms of living arrangements, um, many students will live away from home for the first time when they go to university. Uh, you're doing your own laundry, you're doing your own cooking. Maybe you've done that before, but maybe you haven't. Some people haven't. Um, you're organising your own bills, you're paying your own rent, you're budgeting for the first time. So it gives you a whole range of skills that mean when you enter the world of work, you're really prepared for managing your time, managing your money, and being an adult in, in the grown-up world. That's a much better answer than I go. Well, first avocado, first curry. 
just opening opening all sorts of doors of uni for me. Um, all right. Uh, <laughs> you had an avocado curry. That's unusual. <laughs> I thought avocado was well weird when I had it. And how many hours a week am I going to be spending at university? It's very variable. Um, so for some courses you'll have a great deal of what we call contact hours. So that's time when you're in the lab or, or you're in a tutorial or you're in a seminar. It's time when you're having direct teaching. For other courses, uh, you know, for example, my own course in English Literature, it's much more around self-directed study. So, uh, you know, potentially up to four hours of contact time for a, for a course like English or History. But that doesn't mean you're only learning for that period of time. What's really important in those subjects where maybe there is a more compressed uh, number of contact hours is that you're reading, that you're using the library, that you're doing self-directed research. So it really depends on the discipline, it really depends on the course structure, it also depends on how the university has decided to best teach you as well. Shall I ask you some, Paul? I'll ask you ones that I think are particularly pertinent to you. Thanks. What happens if you're struggling? So I think whether you're at school, whether at university or even in the world of work, I think you know there will be times in every student's life where they're finding things a little bit more difficult. Um, you know, there are always areas of the course you really enjoy and there are also areas where you might find it a little bit more difficult. The great thing at university is that you've got lots of people there to support you. Uh, and rather than just talking to you about all the university supports, I would say the first thing is your friends. Your friends on your university course are an amazing form of support. Um, so whether that's you know sharing lecture notes, working on projects together um, you know so I think often you know a problem uh, shared is a problem halved so talk to your friends on your course a lot of them will be going through the same experience and actually it's quite often to talk to your friends who might be in the year above or the, the year above that because they will have gone through this they will have known yeah you know what those two weeks before Christmas it's really tough you're tired after a long term of studying and partying and actually now you've got two more essays to hand in. So I think your friends are your biggest form of support, um, but then there are also more formal mechanisms in the university. So whether it be your academic tutor who will be looking after your academic development, the course leader or the programme leader, or whether it be your personal tutor who will be looking at all aspects of your life and helping you through. Yeah, we also have lots of discrete um, support services for students who are in particular circumstances. So if you uh, are from local authority care, we've got a, a dedicated person to help you through university life and um, student financial support there as well. Similarly, if you're estranged, so you don't have contact with your family, we've got people to support you there. And if you're from a refugee or asylum seeking background, we've got dedicated support programs. So the university is on your side. They want you to be as successful as possible. And so we have a range of services to help you through your years with us. So, how do you define a successful graduate of King's? So, thank you to the student who submitted this question. I think it's quite an existential question, actually. Um, what is success? Now, success is about what it means to you. What success means for one student can be very different for another. Um, so, in traditional terms, you might say being successful is graduating, getting your degree. You might say it's about getting a good degree classification, so getting a grade first or a 2-1, but actually I prefer a broader definition of success, which is about the distance travelled. Okay? So for some people, coming to university is a huge success for them, just walking through the door is absolutely fantastic in terms of the journey they've been on to get to university. So success is all about what it means to you. It might be the career that you get at the end of your degree, it might be the life that you live as a student. Success is infinite in terms of what it means to people. And so for me, it's not easy to tell you what successful means. You've got to define it for yourself.
And Anne-Marie, this session's entitled Practicalities, Anxieties and Apprehensions. Thinking back to the 18-year-old Anne-Marie, what, what's the one bit of advice that you would give to yourself if you could go back in time uh, on your journey to, uh, as you started your first year at university? So the best thing you can do for yourself going to university is to join a student society. So when you get to university, there's this fantastic week called Welcome Week or Freshers Week. Um, there's not usually any teaching going on, so it's a, an opportunity to really bed into university, to really get to with your new environment and there's this thing called Freshers' Fair or Society's Fair and it's where all the student societies and clubs, uh, all the interest groups on campus, they put out a stall and you can sign up to join it and if I could have my time again as an 18 year old going to university I would join a society that really speaks to my interests at that point. It's the way you're going to meet your tribe, it's the way you're going to be really happy at university and if you're happy at university you're more likely to be successful as well. The other thing I'd say is relax about experimenting with your essays. This is the time in your first year to really get to grips with your subjects. It's the time to experiment in terms of uh, looking at different approaches, different theories, different lenses, trying different experiments in your academic study. Uh, really take the opportunity to flex your, uh, your academic imagination. What would you say to yourself? What would I say to myself? I would say uh, pick the right subject. So I think I followed a subject which I thought would lead me to the right career uh, rather than picking a subject which I really loved. Now fortunately I got the chance to go back a second time and do a second undergraduate degree in that subject but it's all about the subject. I think if you, if you love your subject as much as you should you'll want to spend time with it, you'll be amazed by it, you'll be terrified by it, it will give you heartache, it will give you so much joy uh, and you know you'll come out of it feeling really academically uh, awakened. I think that's what happened for me at university was that you know, my eyes were a lot wider to the world, to people uh, and I think you know you pick the right subject, you'll want to go to the lectures, you'll attend, you'll engage and I think all of those things follow. Is a really good practicality. First day of uni, take a pack of biscuits, you'll make friends straight away. A big pack. <laughs> okay, I think we're done. <laughs> That's all from our admissions agony aunts. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, there are hundreds of talks and debates available at the IAI.tv. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another Uni Talks podcast. Um, so I think it's time to turn up the tables. Mm -hmm. The next section is uh, about questions that applicants for Oxford and Cambridge will be asked in their interviews. Mm -hmm. So first question, is there a difference between innocence and naivety? Oh yes, there most certainly is a distinction between innocence and naivety. Um, it's possible to be a very experienced person but be innocent. For example, I would say believing in or promoting in a certain kind of goodness. Whereas naivety, and, but to be a truly good person, for example the saints, if they're truly good, they're fully aware of the evil of the world. A naive person, on one reading of the concept, might be somebody who doesn't really understand, doesn't really see, doesn't see when people are being malevolent or malicious, or thinks that it, or thinks that yeah, it happens, but over there. Dostoevsky wrote a, a novel in which he um, tried to describe the, the perfectly good person. Most people consider that it was a complete failure. 
this attempt, precisely because the goodness that he was talking about was partly one of, of, of innocence. And it's very hard to conceptualize what will be an innocent but fully grown up adult human being. Our next episode will be the last in the series, where we'll be joining Zaid. Saeed is a well-dressed sports fan from London and he'll be interviewing Shahid Abari at Queen Mary University. UniTalks was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas in association with The Brilliant Club and King's College London. The IAI's vision is to create a world where philosophy and big ideas are at the heart of society. The Brilliant Club is an award-winning charity. They work to increase the number of pupils from underrepresented backgrounds progressing to highly selective universities. UniTalks is produced by Hannah Renton, Irene Carter and Bridie Edison-Child at the IAI with editing on this episode by Irene and Brady, and help from Anna Crisp, Helena Berry, Genevieve Marciniak, and from the Brilliant Club, Michael Savinsky, Jordana Knight, and Jade Hanley. Thanks for listening.